0: We're starting a new series of messages, and for those of you who are from around here for a while know that this is not typically what we do. Usually we do Bible uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, of a book of a Bible, but for the next 10 weeks we're going to be looking at a series that I think is is something pretty needful. Um, We talk about doing the Christian life together. One of the realities for a lot of people, and I, I assume this includes a lot of you, that we desire with all of our hearts, really, to, to be effective in our Christian life, and yet many times we end up feeling like we fall short. And the idea of how do I effectively live out my faith is a challenge for most people, and there are really some fundamental reasons why it's, it's difficult, and we're going to talk about that over the next week, and, and some very practical things that we can do to make a difference. But what I'd like you to do is turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, the first chapter, and I want to start reading in verse 26, and we're going to begin talking first and foremost about God and you. Who is God? Who are you? And what's the purpose? Why are you here? Not here, but generally here. Would you stand with me as we begin by reading this passage together? Verse 26, chapter 1 of Genesis, it reads as follows. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock and over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him, male and female, He created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And God saw that all that he had made and it was very good. Let's begin with prayer. Father, I ask as we look to your word this morning that your Holy Spirit would look to us that, God, that you would really go deep into who we are and help us to begin to understand who you are and what it is that you want us to be, that you might guide and direct us in your paths, that we might learn how to walk with you, Lord, just very simply learning how to walk with you on a daily basis, that we might enjoy the blessings of fellowship with you through your Spirit. We ask you for this grace in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I have found over the years that most serious Christians feel like they are ineffective in the big sense in their walk and their service to God. Uh, It's the kind of feeling where, like Brene Brown says, we live in a culture of scarcity, and what she meant by that is we never feel like there's ever enough of anything, and as a consequence, we never feel like we're good enough, that we never measure up. And I don't know about you. Yes, I do. I know about you. I know about me, so I know about you. But I just wonder, how many of us have those moments, maybe that's a continuous state of being, where you feel like when it comes to living for God, you're just never good enough? Anybody else feel that? Or is there an honest person in the crowd? Yes. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, really, if we're honest about it, it's natural for us to encounter God and begin to realize that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the way Apostle Paul put it, right? We recognize that there's a great gap between us and God. There's this deficiency between the holiness of God and the unholiness of me. That we all are, as Mark Twain said, we're like men who are, we're like the moon, that we have a dark side that we hope other people won't see. And yet the frightening dynamic of walking with God is that God is in the business of shining the light of truth on all the areas of my life. And if that doesn't at least initially frighten you, then you don't know what I just said. (laughs) Because most of us live with all sorts of hidden pockets of shame that we're terrified that if other people knew these things about us or saw them, they would never have anything else to do with us. And all of this is dynamic because it affects directly the, the the enjoyment and the happiness and the pleasure that we derive from life. That when we live with a life of of hiding and of shame and and feeling like we're never good enough and we never measure up, we begin to live partially. We don't live wholeheartedly. We we can't go through life with this open transparency and just say. I rejoice in who I am, and I want to begin by saying a lot of that is because we misunderstand who God is. What Genesis chapters 1 and 2 did was outline in amazing detail who God is, who God is, who He is in terms of His person, His nature, His being, and how He created us for a purpose on purpose, as the subtitle of this message says and how that translates into my daily life. But I want to begin with basically something that that George Barnas said in regards to Christianity today, and he made this interesting point. He said that the influence of Christianity on culture and individual lives is largely invisible. In other words, what he's saying is that the church in America today is having a very limited and a decreasing effect upon the culture and upon the lives of other individuals, And why is that? Well, he listed a list of reasons he said that the church has become less effective. And the very first thing he said is because Christians today are biblically illiterate. Another fact, in fact, he went on to say that only 9% of America's born-again Christians have a biblical worldview. Only 9% of those who profess to be followers of Jesus view the world and life on an everyday basis the way that Jesus said we should view our lives. And I'm not saying that to be condemning or critical because it grows out of a really a lack of understanding even of what the Bible says in its most baking points. And so a lot of what I want to feature on this series is about what does the Bible say about these various aspects and how do we translate that into language that we understand and can apply to our daily lives. But secondly, he said, what happens as a consequence is Christians have become ingrown. He says, Christians are becoming more ingrown, less outreach-oriented. In other words, most churches today have concluded, and most people who go to church, believe that the church exists exclusively to meet their personal needs. They do not see themselves as a force for change in the world, but rather they see the church as a cloister to hide and protect them from that world. We want to keep the messy people out and only include the people who are like us in the group. And when we do that, we make a decision to become spiritually incestuous. The biggest problem with incest is that it breeds weird people. You know, that's, that's the big problem. They, you know, they're those guys who sit on, on porches playing banjos with no teeth. You know, that's, that's what it creates. And sometimes what happens in Christianity is that Christians become known for how odd they are. They're not distinct. They're not a particular people. They're just kind of weird. And we develop our own in-house jargon and, and interact with each other, and, and, and we become cloistered. We become isolated from the culture. That wasn't Jesus' plan. Jesus was the friends of sinners, and He was widely criticized for that. So as Christians, we're not supposed to be withdrawing from the world. We're supposed to be engaging the world because we have the one thing that they need and do not have, okay? The third thing that Barna said was that we have become are increasingly amoral. What's the word amoral? It means not bad, not good, not anything. The way he puts it is this there are no moral absolutes that are worth fighting for. So increasingly, we're pulling away from the public debate about the major issues. And we become, and when we show up, we show up after the battle has been fought and won, but we're not really being front and center, saying, here's what the Word of God says, and engaging the culture in its moral and ethical choices, and holding a a level of accountability for the Word of God and what God wants. Because the simple fact we need to understand in the same way that people who to walk away from God and, and avoid God in their life are going to reap negative consequences, that expands to the entire culture. That when a society turns its back on God, not only by practice, but even worse, by public policy, it is setting itself up for Judgment. Not necessarily our, God's judgment, although that may be part of it, but the fact that God can remove his blessing because we no longer want the blessor in our presence. The fourth thing is that he says we've also, the church has become increasingly immoral. In other words, when we look at the issues, the big moral issues of our day, things like uh, whether we're talking about adultery or fornication and abortion and divorce and all of these things that are huge issues, the church is statistically no different from the society out there. Our divorce rate in the church is exactly the same as it is in secular society as a whole. The one in three women in America have an abortion in some time in their lifetime. One in three women in the church have an abortion sometime in their lifetime. So you have to understand that we're basically standing up and condemning people for doing things that we're doing, and that really invalidates us. That's called hypocrisy, and the culture picks up on that really quickly, but on a deeper level, it's, it really comes down to what the prophet Hosea said in Hosea 4.6 when he said, "'My people are being destroyed because of a lack of knowledge.'" Now, it's interesting because the word knowledge, how do we understand knowledge? Do we understand it simply as information that's acquired? Well, the Greeks had an interesting way of describing different qualities of knowledge. There was informational knowledge, but they had another word, genosos, which referred to epigenosis this experiential knowledge. It's something I know because I've experienced it. In fact, it really reflects the Asaro uh, Indians in, in, in New Guinea, have this interesting little phrase. They say this, knowledge is only a rumor until it lives in the muscles. Knowledge is only a rumor until it lives in the muscles. In other words, knowing something in your head is not the same as actually knowing it. We can know all sorts of things theoretically, but until our hands have become greasy with doing something, we really don't understand at all. I love watching cooking shows, believe it or not. I, have the, I hate the fact that they come in at night when I, before I go to bed, but then the real, I love watching what they can do with food. In fact, believe it or not, I love food. I really like food. Put chocolate or bacon on anything and it's, it's, a, it's an hors d'oeuvre. But the simple fact is that cooking is not the same as watching somebody cook. It's not the same as reading a cooking book. You have to actually get in and become one with the garlic, which isn't all that hard for me. But what we find is that most Christians struggle in their Christian walk not because of a lack of information. Last year, a a pastor that I knew, not real well, but I knew him, respected him, honored him, and it it becomes national news as pastor of a church of 20,000 people who's been having a two-year series of affairs with different women in his church after we're talking about 25 years of ministry. You think that over 25 years of preaching week after week that he didn't know that adultery was wrong? He absolutely... I mean, there's no question that he knew it was wrong, but what staggered so many of us was, why did he do it? And that kind of disconnection is not uncommon even for you and me. There are things that we know are wrong, but we find ourselves attracted to them and even surrendering to them. That's why it's interesting that psychologists have figured out that learning and, and changing person's life requires a progressive three steps. That first of all, we have to begin with a head. We have to know information in our head. And that's why the Bible says, how can anybody follow God if they don't hear God? Jesus says the seed is the Word of God. And He says, and men hear the Word of God. But He says, but if it doesn't take root in their life, it will never produce fruit. So that just knowing what the Bible says is important, is essential. It's a first step, but there's a secondary step. Once I know something, what do I do with it? And that's where it moves from the head to the heart, because when we begin to embrace something in our heart, I like to call it wrestling with God. Have you ever read something in the Bible that you wished you hadn't read you know, especially there's things that you know, and you just happen to be going through a certain situation, and suddenly, you know, you read this thing about love your enemies and pray for those who despise. If he asks for you, your coat, give him your cloak also. If he asks you one more, I'm reading this and saying, I've already given him too much. I'm not giving him anything else. And I'm really taking my stand. They're not going to do me. I got my boundaries. And I read that and go, oh, stink. Again, am I the only one who has these kind of experiences? I or are you just not reading your Bibles? Right? Okay, thank you. What happens at that moment? Do you not begin to wrestle in your heart? One writer called it the rumble. <laughs> the idea of gangs coming and rumbling in the streets. There's this rumbling that's going on in the inside of you because you're saying, God, I know what your word says, but I don't want to do what your word says. I don't want to love. I don't want to forgive. I do not want to embrace that person into my life. My wife and I have been, we pray about a lot of things, but we were praying about one particular person. We've been praying that God would just change them and change them and change them. And she comes to me with this devotional book she's reading. She says, look what I just read here. It says, sometimes we pray that God will change other people when really what He just wants us to live, love them just the way they are. And I said, oh, stink! (laughs) That means if I love them the way they are, I'm going to have to become vulnerable to the things I want God to change. <laughs> and I wrestled with that until finally I said, okay, God, I, I surrender. And then when you surrender, when, you, when your heart has wrestled and has come to a place where you really wrestled with your own will, that His will be done, not your will, when you've come to the end of that process and you finally say, okay, I surrender, Lord, Your will be done. Then you move from head to heart to hands. And I realize that my next encounter with this person is one that I have to pray over and say, God, when I go in next week and spend some time with this person, I need to pray that you would just fill me with love, compassion, forgiveness, graciousness, tenderness. I need to do that with all of my heart. Give me that grace. And that's really when our lives begin to have a a difference, where we begin to have an impact. Because it's not just information that we've gotten into our heads. It's not just something that we're wrestling with in our hearts, but we have wrestled until we've come to the place of surrender. And being surrendered, then we begin to respond to that situation in the very way that Jesus says we're to be responded. And at that moment, what happens is you become changed. One of the reasons... We're launching Connect Groups is for this very reason. You see, I have listened over the years so many times people saying after Messy Boy Pastor, I really need to hear, hear that. Or I've had people say, Man, you really beat me up bad that week. And I had one guy tell me one time, I only come every two or three weeks because I can't handle it every week. <laughs> he says I go out so beat up and I feel so guilty. I just can't handle it, so I just kind of take a few days, a few weeks to recover, and then I come back. And I said, Well, at least you come back. And I don't want to say that I don't get that. I get that. I remember one time when I was in India, KP said, here's my new book, we ought to read this. I said, sure. So I started reading it. I got through the first chapter. I was so convicted, I closed it and said, I think I'll wait until I get back to America. And I was true to my word. Two years later, I picked it up again. (laughs) Because what I read in that first chapter, I did not want to deal with in my life. And so I didn't. Here's the thing, though. What really lies behind that is a lot of shame. When we feel exposed in an area of our life where we know we're deficient, we feel shame. And shame's power is in our silence. You see, James put it this way, he said, Confess your sins one to another that you may pray for one another and be healed. The last thing that you and I want to do is to sit down with somebody else and say, Let me tell you the truth about me. Let me tell you about what's really going. When I talk about my friend who, who was caught up in immorality, I can tell you something about him. Long before he ever entered into that first illicit relationship, there was a wrestling and a battle going on that he didn't tell anybody about. And the problem with most pastors is we can become experts in secrecy about ourselves. And so as a result, if you don't speak of the things that are shame-causing in your life, they gain power by your silence. And as we're going to talk about here further on, when we talk about the nature of God, we talk about the nature of man as God made him, and the whole dynamic of relationship with God and man, it's not about sitting silently and not talking about it. Because when I talk about the heart wrestling and rumbling with an issue, that is intended by God to happen not only inside of your own prayer closet, which is a good place to start, but it also happens as we confess those realities, those struggles with other people. Because as soon as we verbalize them, they begin to lose their power. And as they lose their power, we begin to get insight and victory, and change begins to take place. But God intended for Christians to live in communities. That's why God created the church. The church is designed not to be a building that we sit and listen to some windbag drone on for 45 minutes. No, the church is designed to be this community of believers who learn to begin to integrate their struggles and their lives and their, together in such a way that it actually has a liberating and freeing effect upon them. It becomes life changing. Shakespeare, in, in his, in his uh, play Hamlet, had a character by the name of Polonius. And he said something, Shakespeare wrote something for Polonius to verbalize that I think we've all heard, but maybe maybe didn't know the context. But he makes a statement, he says, To thine own self, be true. And every time I listen to that, I've thought about it over the years. I thought, that's so funny because we can't help but be true to our own selves. And what do I mean by that? Well, take the word believe. What the word believe means, really, I mean, is, is to be and to live. It's those two things, I, I be and I live. I, I, I live who I am, in other words. That what you see coming out of my life is going to be a true expression of who I am. Sometimes people do things that they're embarrassed about because it's socially unacceptable, and, and they'll say, I don't know what came over me, or I don't even know where that came from. It's, it's like people will just suddenly, they'll, they'll strike themselves... <laughs> It's like a friend of mine. He he was riding his motorcycle to work. He worked at the same church I was at, and this woman pulls in front of him. He had to lay it down, slide into the back side of her car, and he was uninjured because he was a good rider. But he got up and he walked up to that woman's car window. She's terrified, and he says, Madam, I'm so angry I could cuss. <laughs> the whole point was that I'm not convinced he knew how to. But you see, some of us it just comes out of us. You hit your thumb with a hammer and the words that come out turn the sky blue. They're their own weather system. And then you say, oh, excuse me, I don't don't know where that came from or I love my favorite is, ah, excuse my French. You know, I know a little French. That doesn't sound like any French I ever heard in my life. (laughs) Parlez-vous profane? And, you know, (laughs) the simple fact of the matter is, We do express what we believe. I do. When we talk about, we'll talk about Eve later on in this series. And when we look at Eve's transgression, we're saying, why did she eat it? Because she believed that disobedience was more profitable than obedience. Why do you and I choose things that we know in our head aren't right? It's because deeper in our hearts, we believe that what we're doing is more to our advantage than it would be to be faithful to God. And I don't say that to make you feel horrible about yourself, but, you know, the truth, you know the truth, the truth will set you free. The problem is in between knowing the truth and being set free is this painful wrestling of the heart of admitting what is true and then receiving the grace of God that allows you to change, that your heart changes. So I want to answer three questions this morning. Number one, who is God? Number two, who is man? And number three, what's man's purpose? Why am I here? And the first one, who is God, is more central to everything because if, Jesus put it this way, He says, if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? In other words, if what you believe is true about God is actually not true about God, then you've really ventured down the wrong road. When I was a boy, my dad used to take my brother and I down to Mexico to go fishing, and, and uh, I remember the first time we went, we we're heading down this road, beautiful highway, which in Mexico is not all that common, at least back in the 50s, and we were drawing down this beautiful highway, and we see nothing in every direction, and there's these two boys walking a burrow on the side of the road. My dad pulls over in his great big Lincoln, Lincoln Continental, and they must have been wild, thought we'd come from the moon, and... My dad says to him in his limited Spanish, he says, is this the road to San Felipe where we were going to go fishing? And they responded, si, si, bueno, bueno. And they kept on saying, the road's good. And my dad goes, okay, and he takes off, and then he sat there, thought for a minute, he said, wait a minute, they thought I was asking if this was a good road. In other words, my dad suddenly realized, we've been traveling for a couple of hours, out into the middle of nowhere, this is not where we want to be. We were making really good time, (laughs) but it wasn't where we wanted to go. And if your concept of the direction to God is wrong, you may be making huge progress, but it's taking you someplace that you're going to regret that you arrived at. We need to know who God really is, at least as how He described Himself. That's why Genesis 1 and 2 are powerful. Because God goes into great detail to tell us about Himself. In fact, 29 times, He is the speaker just in the first chapter. So what do we know about God? Well, the first thing He makes very clear, in the beginning He said, God created the heavens, and the earth. In other words, that's a way of saying that everything that exists, exists because God spoke it into existence. And He did it in what they, in the Latin, it's ex nihilo. It literally means He created everything out of nothing. Incomprehensible idea to you and me. I can't conceive of that. That there was nothing. It wasn't like God had to go find something to transform it. You see, when I talk about you or me being creative, I take something that God already created and I reconfigure it. <laughs> That's what I do. That's what you do. But God starts with nothing and creates out of nothing everything by himself. What does that imply? Well, let me give you an illustration of your own self. You, you have a craft, you have a, a skill, an ability. You, you do something, you create something. I, I write sermons. I write sermons. I create messages on on an ongoing basis. But the thing you'll obviously recognize is that the way I write a sermon is pretty unique to the way my brain operates. You know, I, I just basically take the data and I process it through my own mind and I take the Word of God and I configure it in a way that makes reasonable and logical sense. It makes it meaningful for me personally. In other words, the message is organized around my person. When God created the heavens and the earth, He organized everything around Himself. So that that's why the psalmist says we can look at nature and we can see God's handwriting everywhere. We can see God written all over the heavens and the stars, everything around us. He says even the stars in heaven sing His praises and His glory. We are the work of His hands. We see His handiwork around the universe. The evidence of God is self-evident, and to deny it is an act of willfulness, not an act of intellect. So if everything originates from God, then everything in the universe is organized by, for, and around God. That essentially He becomes the central unifying factor in everything that exists including you and me. But you find many people saying, well, there's something missing in my life. And the first thing I'd ask him is, do you know God? Do you know God? Because if you don't know God, or if you're living, a, which is basically living a life of choosing not to know God, then you're trying to organize your life around something that has no center. It's kind of like Gravity. I may like to say that I don't believe in gravity because I can't see it, I can't touch it, I can't taste it, I can't hear. Do you hear gravity working at this moment? But I tell you that I know that if I step off this stage, I'm not going to go up, I'm going to go down. Even Superman can scale large buildings in a single bound, but he always comes back down. And that's the reality. There's this gravitational pull The reality is that when we talk about God in His universe, that He created, is based upon His principles, that He sustains and maintains by His power, He has a gravitational pull so that when I live my life trying to escape the pull of His gravity, I end up living a life that the universe conspires against. You ever feel like that? I feel like the God's the universe is conspiring against me. It's not really that. It's you trying to overcome the forces that God put into play. When we were, I was at the beach a couple weeks ago, and and uh, this hurricane was going by the Hawaiian Islands, and calling these storm surges, and there's these big waves, and so you know I'm I'm a water guy, and I'm thinking to myself, I got this. And so I'm trying to, you know, diving under the waves as they're coming in, trying to get out beyond where they were breaking, and all of a sudden, there was this wave that almost instantaneously rose up well over my head, full of brown sand, which means it was sucking stuff right off the bottom, and I'm saying to myself, I got it, and I dive in to go underneath it, and it flips me like a pancake and slammed me back down on the turf, and rolled me. I got sand in places that I didn't realize I even had places. (laughs) And i crawling on my hands and knees out of the surf, up on the beach, and I looked at my wife and said, I've had enough. (laughs) I mean, the force of that wave was so powerful. And I was thinking to myself, what was I thinking? And see, I think many people feel like that's what's happening in their lives. Why am I getting beat up by the world and life so pathetically? And the answer is because you're not going with God. You're not yielding to the gravitational pull of God. You're trying to break out of His orbit and live independent of Him, and you cannot. You will never win that battle because at the end you die. I don't know, that may be news to some of you because you live like you think you never will. But in the end, you do die, and and God does get His way. Thy will be done, because either way, His will is going to be done. The question is, is it going to be with your cooperation, or is it going to be with your opposition? That's why Jesus, when His disciples said, teach us to pray, they said to Him, pray this, your will be done, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Let my life be brought into conformity to what you want. The second thing we need to understand about God is that He is a spirit. When He says in verse 2 of chapter 1, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, right away we find Jesus responding in John 4, God is spirit and His worshipers must worship Him in spirit and truth. Why does God hate idolatry? Because idolatry gives matter, the material world, the honor that should only go to the Spirit of God. God is not the material world. He is not made of matter. He, God isn't in the trees. God made the trees. He sustains them, but He isn't in the tree. God is Spirit. And those who are going to actually worship Him and live, in other words, worship means you live in right relationship with God, are those who recognize that we worship Him in Spirit. That what God is looking at is the depth of my heart, the truth within the inner part of me. That is where the church really begins and lives most vibrantly. Spirit is invisible and it's it's unperceptible to the human senses. But at the same time, His presence is unmistakable around the world. That's why Paul would say to the Romans, uh, God has made it plain. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities have been clearly seen. It, they may be invisible, but they're unmistakable. They're all around us, and we see it all the time. This is why even the atheist will fall to his knees and pray in a moment of threat and danger, because he knows that God is the only answer and the only hope. But thirdly, and this is what is really confusing to people, is that God is plural. Um, In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, he says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image and in our likeness. Interesting. Some people say, well, who's God talking to? Who is that second person or third person he's talking to? It's interesting because the language is really clear. The grammar is really clear that he's not talking about angels. But God is talking about Himself. And it's interesting because if you really want to see the evidence of that, if you keep on reading, He goes on to say about man, the creation of man. He made man in God's image. He made them plural. He made them male and female. So God who says, I exist in plurality, have created man in my image to reflect who I am. I live in a plural nature, and I create man to exist in a plural relationship as well. This is why when we talk about the, the issues of same-sex marriage and sexual identity and all that stuff, why that issue is more than just about talking about morality, it's talking about the very foundational principles upon which the universe is founded. And to ignore that, to change that, to say it doesn't apply, to live contrary to it is, is a, a no-win approach to life as the Scripture says, you can't sow to the flesh except that you'll reap corruption. <laughs> It'll bring some corruptible consequence because God simply said, you need to understand this about my nature. I live in fellowship with myself. With theological sense, we say God is not a monad because if God is a monad, in other words, He exists all by Himself, to whom does God speak? To whom does God commune? Well, the Bible tells us that God talks to Himself, not in the way that my crazy uncle did, but He talks to Himself. And that's why even within these first two chapters, God is described by three different names. The first one is God, translated G-O-D, is the word Elohim in Hebrew. It's the Hebrew is the only language that has the word Elohim as part of its vocabulary. And it's usually rendered God in plural, but it means more than that. It, it means God the Almighty. That's the idea of the magnification, the plurality in Greek Hebrew uh, vocabulary is a, a magnification of God. He is the Almighty God, He is the one who created the heavens and the earth. And yet, as He goes on to chapter 2, He talks about Elohim as also being Yahweh. And Yahweh is interesting because that's the covenant name, but it really implies the one who has revealed Himself, the Almighty God who has revealed Himself in a merciful, loving relationship towards His creation. And then finally, we read about the Spirit of God, the Ruach of God hovering over the earth. And suddenly you realize we have three God names right here. We have Elohim, God the Father, we have Yahweh, God the Son, we have the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, which is also, importantly, the Spirit of truth, which really brings me to the issues of God's character, because there are two things, actually, I added a third as I was thinking about this this morning, so it won't show up on the screen, but you guys have such photographic memories, you won't lose any detail, but one of the things that God makes very clear in the opening of the whole book is that He is the God of truth. That in other words, it isn't that he abides by the truth, but truth literally emanates from him. It's the nature of his character. God who cannot lie because all that God can do is be true to God and be truthful. He speaks the truth, unlike you and I. So that when he says to us in the opening of the book, let there be light, and there was light, and he separates the light from the darkness, John picks that up in his first letter and says... In Him there is no darkness at all. And if we walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. It's amazing how many times people in the name of their religious faith do things that are dark, dastardly, wicked, and evil. And then they polish over saying, well, it's God's will. No, what Scripture says is, if you do something that's darkness, that's a lie, because there, and there's no lie in God. God is a God of truth. That's why His Holy Spirit, one of the names for the Spirit of God, is the Spirit of truth, and that's why when you have ask Christ into your heart and the Holy Spirit comes into your life, you begin to experience very quickly conflict because suddenly the truth detector isn't out there. He's in here. Before I was a Christian, I remember especially down in Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco, cruising along and being, you know, just uber cool. And, 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 and at least I thought I was because I had a 10-foot afro. I looked like a Q-tip, you know, this thin and big head. Uh, And these Christians came up and wanted to share Christ with me. Man, I made distance between me and them so fast, and it was effective. I can run away from them, and they can no longer yammer in my head. And then I asked Jesus into my heart, and there's no way I could run away from the truth detector. God speaks His truth on the inner man, and suddenly you find Him taking great liberties with your personal privacy. I love it when people say, well, religion's a private matter. Oh, yeah? Well, tell God about that. Because He turns on His divine flashlight, and He starts going through the corners and the hallways, and He finds stuff, and He shines a light, and he says, well, hey, where'd this come from? Oh, somebody else must have left there, because you know I'd never do. You know, it's like, and the wrestling starts again in your heart, because you know that He is the truth, and the wrestling continues until you come to a place to say, God, that's mine. I put that there. I've been hiding this in the corners of my life. Sometimes we say for decades I've been hiding things in the corners of my life. And right now, you've exposed that. And you know what he says? What I shine my light on, I also remove. I found it in your life that I might take it away from you and free you from it so that you don't have to live with the haunting shame of that in your life but that's what He does. He's the Spirit of truth. And, 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 and wonderful thing, it'd be one thing if He was just the Spirit of truth, but He's also the Spirit of goodness. He is a benevolent God. That's why He says when He looked at everything that He created, He says God blessed it. In other words, He endowed it with His goodness, with His pleasure, with His treasure. And then he goes on to say, and he looked at everything he made and he said, it is very good. In fact, seven times, seven days of creation, seven statements, good, 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 very good. Because we serve a God who is good. If God was just simply a God of truth, he'd be a scary character. He'd be a lot like you. He'd see things in other people and just be judgmental and harsh and critical. That's what we do. God sees those things in you, and He's good. And He immediately begins a plan of how can I free you from the captivity and the bondage of that thing in your life that you might be, which is my next point, (laughs) that you might be free. But maybe thirdly most importantly is that not only is is God the God of truth, and not only is He the God of goodness, But He's a God who is eminently knowable. He's knowable. He isn't some abstract being that that emanates somewhere out in the mysterious. He's not the force that you hope will be with you if you master the Jedi rules. No, He's the God who speaks into the vacuum of our life. He's the father in, the, in Luke 15, the story of the parable of the prodigal son, who is watching and waiting, and he sees his son coming when he is far off and runs to his son, not the other way around. You see, religion basically says you need to figure it out, you need to find the path, you need to make the journey, you've got to overcome the obstacles, and then you can knock on the door, and if you knock long enough on God's door, eventually, if nothing else, I'll have irritation, he'll open the door and say, okay, what do you want? No, our God is a God who, when we are far off, as soon as He sees that moment of turning and saying, Oh, Lord, forgive me. He races to find you and to rescue you and to restore you and to rebuild you. He is eminently knowable. So that when we talk about God as our Creator, does it not make sense that He made us so that we could know Him? It's like building a radio station in a land where nobody has a radio. Who's going to listen to the voice? The radio waves can go everywhere, but if there's nothing, no capacity to receive the message, it's useless and pointless. So God created us with a capacity to receive the broadcast of His truth into our lives. That's why when we talk about who man is, the first thing we need to realize is what man is is basically a creature. And by definition, the word creature means under the complete control and authority of another. He is God, you are not. Are we confused? He is God, you are not. We're not trying to find the divinity inside of us because there is no divinity in us. What there is is the Holy Spirit of God who has indwelt us. He lives in us. But you were created by God for God. But secondly, he created you as an image bearer. And what that, it's interesting, there's two things that are said. He created man in his own image, and then he said he made man in his likeness. And those are two different words in the original. And they have a slightly different distinction. Because the word image there literally means a shadow reflection in the same way that the moon reflects the light of the sun. The moon has no light in and of itself, but it is created and designed by God that it can reflect the sun's light upon the earth and become a light in the night if the relationship is right. And so what he says is he created you as someone who is designed to display his nature to the world around you. But when He says also that we're creating His likeness, that means that we have a like-mindedness. In other words, when I talk about God loving me, why do I understand the concept of love? It's because God put the concept of loving inside of me so that I know that I am propelled by one driving passion, and that's defined unconditional, unfailing love. Now let me ask you, what's the chance that you're going to find that here on this planet? Are you going to find it by marrying the right person? How many marriages are in crisis because one or both of you are operating under the concept that this person is going to love you like God loves you and they keep on letting you down because they're not God? No. God created me with a yearning for unconditional love. But He is the only one who can meet the condition of unconditional love. He created me with that capacity to respond to Him, to receive and to hear from Him. My ability to interface with God is a consequence of God creating me to be able to interface with Him. And that even in the dynamic of the plurality of gender, where He made them male and female, He said the reason he did that is he says because it's not good for man to be alone. That's why people get married. They don't get married for sex. They get married for companionship. In fact, most of what you and I do, we do for companionship. We do it because we want to be closely related to other people that we might not feel like we're in this journey all by ourselves. Now, we can sit back and say, well, it's enough that I have a relationship with God. Really? I love these guys who say, I, basically, the forest is my cathedral. I like to go out there by myself and just commune with God. Well, let me tell you, I've been at some of those magnificent Western European cathedrals. I mean, West, Westminster Abbey and, and, and uh, York Cathedral, and these amazing stone Gothic churches. And you go in there by yourself and you emit your voice and the only thing that you hear back in response is the echo of your own voice off the stone walls. And let me tell you, it's not really fulfilling. No, what makes anything meaningful is when we have someone else with whom we can communicate. That God calls us into Community. Regardless of how you want, He's wired that into us. And so later on, as we talk about that in more specifics in a further study, when we talk about this whole idea of doing life together, we have to understand that the Christian life was never intended by God to be lived in isolation. In fact, it was called, created by God to be lived in such a depth of honesty and transparency that most of us, quite frankly, are terrified by the real prospect, and we would rather keep it formal and structured and at a distance. Because we're living with shame. We're living with under the tyranny of the sh- silence of our shame. We're afraid of being exposed. We're afraid of being outed. We're afraid of being rejected. We're afraid of being ridiculed. And so we, we close down. And <clears throat> we're not allowed to be human. We're not allowed to be strugglers. And yet where does growth take place in people's life it comes when i can honestly say to someone else this is who i am i remember my wife and i were first married and we we're just trying to learn how to learn who each other was and we finally we got to this place of really transparency and i you know i just started sharing with her some of the uh, tr- traumatic events of my life my childhood and then she began to share with me And, you know, my fear was if she finds out that this is who I am, she's not going to want anything to do with me. And her fear was the same. And when we looked at each other and said, you know, but it doesn't really change anything, does it? Suddenly you, you, you find yourself not only being in love, but you're in safety. Shame makes us blame. And when shame is outed and exposed, then suddenly we have to stop blaming, we stop blaming other people because we don't need to try to project it off on anybody else. But we can just turn to God and say, God, take it and free me. The God thoroughly has created you and I to be fruit bearers. He says, be fruitful, increase in numbers and fill the earth and subdue it. You and I are, are created on purpose for a purpose. That the Creator who created us in His image has put within us a need to be creatively productive. Jesus put it this way in John 15.8. He said, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. There is a need in every one of us to feel like we're making a difference, that we're doing something that matters, that we're living in a way that is a world changer. And the simple fact is that if I impact one person, I have changed the world for that one person. But nonetheless, I need to feel that to feel fulfilled and satisfied. That fourthly, He called us to rule, which means He's given us dominion and authority and responsibility. That I'm responsible for my life, how I live it. And that fifthly, He has given me freedom and this is where he says in Genesis two sixteen to, to Adam and Eve, he says, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. You are left with freedom of choice, free will. But choices have consequences. And so God says, I'm going to give you boundaries. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die so that God creates this freedom of choice. But what does that freedom of choice really come down to in the end of the day? How can I simplify it? That God has given you and I the power, the sovereignty, the independence, the freedom to say no to God. That's a scary thing. Dr. Wilder-Smith said it's God's great gamble. He gives you the opportunity to say no, even if it's not in your best interest. I would liken it to my wife. and you know, I, I, if I had come to her with my proposal and said, would you marry me? <clears throat> um, and then I put a gun to her head and said, if you say no, then you won't have to worry about ever getting married. <laughs> and so at that moment, with a gun to her head, she says, yes, I will marry you. Would I ever really know that she loved me? But when I, in t- great terror, said would you marry me? And she said with great delight, probably delusional delight, but nonetheless great delight, yes. Then suddenly I had all the flush and the rush of joy because I knew that she was choosing to love me of her own free will. I know, granted, she's questioned that decision many times since then, but nonetheless, at the moment it was beautiful. But you understand what I'm saying? that God desires relationship with you. Relationship that isn't freely entered into is not a relationship. That's a bondage. He's invited us to come into this relationship. He's made Himself knowable, and He says, I want to know you, but you have to choose to let me be part of your life, which comes down to really what is really the ultimate purpose of your life, my life here upon this planet? And there's two things that really stands out. One may be more than the other. In fact, when I try to answer those kind of questions for myself, I try to go to the Bible and see, what does the Bible say? How does it define man's purpose? And I see in there I need to be fruitful, I need to multiply, and all that kind of stuff. But how do I do that effectively, at least in a way that God is impressed by? And suddenly it popped up there, chapter 3, verse 8. God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and He's calling out to Adam and Eve and saying, where are you? Where are you? You see, God had been accustomed to walking with Adam and Eve in the garden every day, and now suddenly they didn't show up. They were hiding. And when we hide from God, it's a clear indication that something's wrong in our life. Then Genesis 5, and again in 24, it says this about Enoch. Enoch walked with God. It says of Jonah in Jonah 6, 9, Noah walked with God. Now, this isn't just simply a, a pedestrian comment. He's talking about how that their life became conjoined with God on the same path that where God went, they went. It's what Jesus says 22 times in the Gospels, follow me. What is the will of God for my life? Follow me. Just walk with me. It's, not, it's instructive. It's, it's more than just a, a historical comment. It's a, it's a commentary on the spiritual dynamic of the Christian life that Jesus lived, slept, ate, walked, sailed, for three and a half years with this group of men. And what did he say to them over and over again when he invited them to be part of the party? He said, just follow me. That's all I ask. Wherever I go, you go with me. The reality is, what is my purpose in life? My purpose is to walk with God, whatever that means. How did I ever end up in Spokane, Washington? Because I was walking with God. I mean, that's the reality of it. I mean, and you begin to realize this isn't just in certain moments or places or in the big context but not the small context. It's in every aspect of my life that my life is to be defined by this, I'm going where He is. So that when God says to Moses after Israel has rebelled against God and created the golden calf and, 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 and God says, you know, don't worry about it, Moses. I'm going to wipe this people out and I'll give you a whole new bunch of people who are, are, are fun to be around. And I love, he says, but you know, I'm going to send you guys up to the land of Canaan and, and, uh, and uh, I'll send my, my angel there and he'll go fight your battles, but I'm not going with you. <laughs> and Moses said, Lord, if you don't go, I don't go. If your presence doesn't go with us, then I don't want to. I'll stay here in this barren, lifeless desert till I die because I would rather live in those conditions with you than to live in the land of bounty without you. That's the choice. I want to walk with God. And for you to begin to see the blessing of God begin to blossom in your life, you have to come to that place where you say, Lord, I will follow you. Where you lead me, I will go. And to invite Him to have that leadership. In fact, my prayer for you today is that when you leave this place, when you wake up tomorrow morning in particular, that you begin your day with that simple prayer, God, today teach me how to walk with you through all of the unseen things or unforeseen things that I will encounter. You ever plan your day in advance? I do. I, got, I mean, sit down, I literally make a list of, okay, these are the things I've got to do. Do you know how many times I've completed that list? There are days where I didn't even get to point one. Because a whole different set. Did that ever happen to anybody else in here? I Am mean, the only one that, that lives that chaos, right? It's an experience of God. But it doesn't matter because at the end of the day, you know, it wasn't the plan, but it was His purpose. I walked with God through this day. And that becomes the challenge. Because that's how we do the other thing that we're all about, and that's glorify God. I have to confess, I never really studied the word glorify (laughs) until yesterday when I was looking at this and I thought, wait a minute, this is one of those words you throw around because you know what it means, but what does it mean? And so I began to look it up and I discovered it's a little bit different than what I thought. To glorify someone or something means to reveal or to make more clear by one's actions how can I reveal and make more clear who God is? By my action. And what is my action? By following Him. By following Him. See, that becomes powerful because then you begin to become like the moon. You're reflecting His light and you don't even see it. You don't even see it. A friend of mine, my wife and I, old friends, we encountered the other day. They've been Missionaries in Germany for the last five years, and <clears throat> came back, and uh, we were having lunch the other day, and they were talking about the, you're telling about their parents coming to Christ. The mother was, her mother was uh, uh, completely institutionalized schizophrenic, and uh, two months before she died, miraculously healed, um, clear mind, completely healed of schizophrenia. And we were talking about that. Wow! And then they talked about her father, and it was powerful, because he said, you know, she had been. Travailing in prayer for his salvation. He was an atheist, nothing. a very successful Jewish businessman, didn't want anything to do with God, didn't want anything, very hard-hearted. <clears throat> I'll call him back later. Um, <laughs> and my friend, basically, he just went into his, where he's blind now, he, the guy, he's become blind, he's dying, and he walks in and he just says, are you ready? And the guy goes, well, ready for what? Ready to die. You are dying, and you're going to be confronted by God. Are you ready to meet God? This, this is my, yet yeah, no, my friend. This is just, he's in your face like that. And he ends up saying, "God goes, well, yeah, I am. And he receives Jesus. He goes home, and he tells his wife, your dad gave his life to Jesus. He said, no, he didn't. No, he didn't. <laughs> you ever prayed for somebody, but you don't think it's going to do any good? <laughs> Been there many times. She goes to see him and said, Dad, did you accept Christ? He said, yeah, you know, Bruce walked in here and he's blind now, but he walked in the room and he said there was this glow of light all over the room and there's light that emanated from him and there's like lights coming out of his eyes and I knew it was God and I gave my life to Jesus. (laughs) Bruce chuckled. I didn't see any light. <laughs> see, that's the point. We look at ourselves and say, Well, I don't see any light. But God reflects off those. He glorifies himself through those who will simply say, Lord, teach me how to walk with you. Because you see, we start the big picture. God is the all in the all, He is everything, and He wants us to submit to that to the point where I realize He has a beautiful plan for my life of which I know almost absolutely nothing. But I believe in Him. As we were praying for a couple of people before service, the prayer that came to my mind that, that I just expressed was that, God, we know what You're capable of, we just don't know what Your will is. But just because I don't know what your will is in this situation, I know what you are capable of doing. And so I'm not afraid to ask you because I know that in the end, your will will be done. But I know what you're capable of. He's capable of doing exceeding, abundantly, above and beyond anything that you think or ask, Paul said. He is capable of anything. And one of my small-mindedness, I pull and saying, well, I don't know how God's going to figure this one out. <laughs> I worry about my kids. I worry about my grandkids. I pray, oh, Lord, take care of them. Watch over and protect them. Granddaughter had seizure while she was driving last week. And, you know, almost killed. And I'm just saying, oh, Lord Jesus. <laughs> and I think, God, you're capable of anything. I just don't know what your will is but I know you can do beyond anything I ask. The only question really that you need to really resolve in your life is, Lord, let me be doing what you want me to be be doing when I live my life every day. That's all I need to know. Your will be done. Father God, I pray that you'd help us to hear these things on on a a deep enough level that they would cause everyone in here to go away wrestling. I don't want to just hit their heads and have them fill their mind with information. I want people to wrestle with this, Lord, as I've had to wrestle with this and will continue to wrestle because it's only in the wrestling that there comes any resolution and the will can be surrendered and then we can begin to live out in actuality your truth transform us, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we close our service, we always take some uh, extra time for worship just to invite you to partake of the elements of communion. And again, I'd just like to remind you the reason we do it is, is, is primarily, well, it's twofold. Number one, what we want you to do is spend some time wrestling with God about whatever He may have spoken to you this morning because the tendency for us is to do is to change the channel really quickly. Right? We just go out the door, we change the channel, and we go on, and we go right back to where we were before we ever came in. And in order for that not to become the reality of your existence, there has to be a point where you stop when God has spoken to you and you sit back and say, God, make that living and real in me. You may have some specific things that God has really exposed, things that you've lived in shame with, and I just invite you, well, there will be those of us up here who will be glad to pray with you just to really pray with you and ask God to free you. You don't even have to tell us what it is, but we want to pray to you. But at some point, you'll probably have to find somebody saying, let me tell you the truth about me. And we'll talk in a future message about how do you find people who are safe to do that with, because not everybody is safe. There are a lot of people who are critical, judgmental, who are so terrified of their own shame that they, they'll leap on you like a pack of dogs on a three-legged cat because they do not want even to touch those issues in their own life. But we need to find that in our life. We need to have those places where we can say, this is who I'm in, and this is what I struggle with. This is where bondage is found. This is where Satan has taken my life captive and has hindered me from being able to go forward. Secondly, when we partake of these elements of communion, and I encourage you to do so if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, but when we do it, this is a ritual act of commitment to the will of God for your life. Jesus didn't die on the cross simply to take away our sins. He did that. He didn't die on the cross so that he could be raised from the dead, so that we could be raised from the dead. He did that, too. But even beyond that, he did it so that we could live in resurrection power today. And when I take these elements, I'm saying, God, I, I surrender my body. I surrender my life to you. Because that's what it represents. The bread represents the body of Christ. The cup, the wine, is not simply the blood of Christ, but The life of the body is in the blood, the book of Leviticus says. It's his body, it's his very life that he's yielded. And what God wants you to do is to present your body, as Paul said in Romans 12, as a living sacrifice. And he says, no greater love hath any man than to lay down his life for his friends. He wants me to surrender my body. He wants me to lay down my life. And he says, when you do that, you will begin to experience resurrection power. When I partake of these elements, friends, what I am saying to God by my act is, I want that to be the reality. I want you to have my body. I want you to have my life. And I want you to use it for your glory. By me following you, wherever it is you want me to go, whatever it is you want me to do. That's where we find that real power in life is found. So respond to God and that it, in, every, in any way that's appropriate for what God's doing in your heart right now.